Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. I've, well, some of you may know, I've had the most atrocious bout of food poisoning. Apologies, let me just, just move this mic up a bit closer. I've had the most atrocious bout of food poisoning, throwing up for about the past two and a half days or so. But yesterday was the first day I felt good and Monica and I headed off on the little Honda Scoopy, just far away from all of the tourists, the most beautiful scenery. Paddy fields, palm trees, lush jungle, right up into the mountains. It was just amazing. We're on the little Honda Scoopy, which is a 110cc bike, and the power's more than enough for somewhere like Bali. But the thing that was the problem, and I don't remember this from last time, but the thing that was the problem on the, the little Scoopy was the seat comfort by the end. And it really made me think, and Monica as well, because the way there we were fine, but on the way back, almost immediately as we started heading back, so about halfway through our journey, we were both saying, God, this is agony, just agony now, being two up on a little bike like this with a hard seat. It's mainly the hard seat, to be fair, more than anything. It, it, it compromises the bike. And it's made us think that possibly for month two of being in Bali, we may actually do a slight upgrade to a Yamaha, I think they're called N-Max, because a lot of people have, have recommended these. They're in essence just bigger bikes with bigger seats. They just look chunkier all round, and it may be a more comfortable proposition for longer journeys. And this got me thinking about comfort and motorbikes in general how important comfort is, and not just how important comfort is, but what is important to you for your bike? What are the, the most important factors for you picking your bike and for you keeping a bike, and more importantly than anything else, for you genuinely enjoying biking? Because picking a bike that's for you is going to be key for you actually wanting to be a biker. I'll give an example. As you all know, it took me about four or five bikes to be able to find a bike that was really me. I now know the two key things that are most important for me for motorbikes, and they are non-negotiable things. They are the first two things that I list as my complete musts. If a bike doesn't have these two things, I walk away without question. I won't even entertain the idea of it. And I now understand the kind of bike I am because of that. And the two things for me are comfort and retro looks. Any bike I consider must tick those boxes. The Bonneville does it, it's gloriously comfortable and it's got the retro looks. I like Harley Davidson's because they do it. They're comfortable, they tick the retro looks. Would I buy a chopper, which I admit I do have a bit of an interest in, my feeling is if I actually ride a chopper, I would probably end up not buying one because they wouldn't be comfortable enough. So a chopper will tick one of the boxes that are essential for me, but not both of them. And that's my criteria. And that leads me very nicely on to an email I've got from Ben. Let's begin. Have a listen to this. Freddie, I'm 35 years old. Six foot three and 14 stone, just for an idea about me. 
Currently, I'm on a CBT license, which for anyone who doesn't know, that's a license where you're allowed to ride a 125cc bike only. I'm on this license and I'm waiting for my full test very soon, but unsure what bike to look out for because I like so many. I've always liked the old bikes just for the classic look, so a Royal Enfield has always been an option for me. But at the same time, I also like more modern bikes like the Yamaha MT-07 or even as far as some adventure bikes, which I feel for my size would probably suit me better. It'll be my first proper big bike. And so far, my budget isn't fantastic, say 3,000 pounds. And I'm not looking for something that'll do 200 miles an hour in first gear. I just want something comfortable on the A road and motorway as my 125cc obviously struggles. Can you suggest a few good options for me to look into, please? Many thanks, Ben. Yes, I can, Ben. I, I have spent a little bit of time and I've come up with with a slightly eclectic mix, and I've gone slightly left field with this. I haven't gone for the kind of bikes you may, you may automatically assume I will go for. I've tried to keep it fairly broad here. And I know what you mean. With your size, you're a big guy, both tall and a unit as well. And Danny, my friend from Ipswich, you may have seen the YouTube video, he is now a huge fan of of adventure bikes he had a triumph bob it just wasn't big enough for him he feels the adventure bikes fit him much better so you may well be right with your size an adventure bike may be the kind of bike for you so i've got a list of four bikes and ben three thousand pounds you'll get a very good bike for that don't worry about that that's a perfectly reasonable uh budget to have let's start off with number one i'll do a bike that you may think is the most obvious coming from me, and that is the Triumph Tiger 800. Now, this is one of the slightly newer Tigers. It's not one of the older ones that's more plastic. This is a 2011, it's 3,495 pounds. Just over budget, but I think you can get that for the magic 3,000 pound mark. It's a nice looking bike. It's very stripped back. You can see a huge amount of the frame. So it is not a plastic vest. It's a handsome looking thing. This one is all black, just with a white tank and white front mudguard. 29,000 miles. It's got an MOT for, the, ooh, MOT for the next month. And this may be why it's cheap. So you're going to have to take a slight risk on it. It needs a new battery. It's only got standard wear and tear, nothing else untoward. I'll include a link in the written description, but this kind of bike, to get a Triumph Tiger at around about the three to three and a half thousand pound mark, I think will be a really good deal. And that is a huge amount of bike for the money. That 800cc engine in a Triumph Tiger, it will also be very rugged, very reliable, and very long lived. I think you won't have any issues with that at all. And being on a budget of about 3,000 pounds, which is the budget pretty much that I had for the Bonneville, you know, you want to make sure that you get something reliable. So, and people may have a go at me here. I've stuck away or I've stayed away from the Moto Goodsies and the Ducatis. You can get those kinds of bikes, but I want to make sure that you get something that 
that's going to be fairly reliable and also fairly cheap to maintain. And apologies if I'm being too unfair on the Italian stuff there. I'm having a look through just to give you an example. If you go on to Auto Trader and have a look at Triumph Tiger 800s, the cheapest one, the cheapest, is four grand. So you're going to have to take a little bit of a risk, although I don't think it's too much risk at all. A little bit of a risk on this, this Triumph Tiger on Facebook Marketplace at £3,495. But I think this, this will be a very, very loyal little well, not little, it's a fairly big machine. This will be a very loyal runner to you. I think this will do you well. I will remember to include a link to this bike so you can have a look at it. That's number one. Number two, in fact, I'll tell you what I do. Let me just save that so I can get that for you later on Facebook Marketplace. Number two is, this is a bike I like because you said you like the, the retro styling and you're open to adventure bikes. I hope this bike will tick all of those boxes. It is the mighty BMW GS 1150. Let me just type this into Facebook. BMW GS 1150, and I found you one already. There is one, and this is the classic style. This is the BMW GS 1150 that uh, Charlie, I've gone completely blank, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman went around the world on their first trip. It's got those beautifully classic lines. This is an all-time classic. I think it will be in a future, uh, an appreciating classic in the future. And what you can get, Ben, is a 2002 model with the big 1150 engine, 2,850 pounds. It's got 60,000 miles on the clock. It's got 10 months MOT and it is a, to the best of my knowledge, a private seller, which is great for bikes like this. Now you may think 60,000 miles, well, that is quite high. But whenever I do a poll or a survey on Instagram and I ask people, what is your highest mileage bike? Usually within the top 10 bikes, top 10 highest mileage bikes, there are usually a good one or even more than one. There are usually two GSs in there somewhere. These are seriously, seriously long-lived bikes. They will go on and on and on forever. And that can come in just under budget. £2,850 for an all-time classic bike that will never, ever drop a penny. The third one is a bike close to my heart, and that is a Honda Transalp. It's not, it's not ultra classic styled, I, I don't want to lie, but these have their own very definite charm and they've got a bit of a cult following. I think the one I found is 2,750 pounds, but let me just make sure. Honda, I always forget. I always forget the code names they've got. Let's have a look. Honda Transalp. What does it come under? XL. Honda XL. Okay, let's have a look. Honda XL, and it will be the, I think it will be the 650. Let's have a look. 
So Honda XL650, let's go, let's go with that, XL650, I'm sure this is the one. Yes, it is. So XL650, this is the second engine that they put in the trans -app. The first was the 600cc, the second was the 650, and the third was the 700. Now, the 600 is almost impossible to find in the UK. The 650 is more common, but still there are only five of them in the UK. They, I can almost guarantee, will not drop one penny in value. They're a very smart do-it-all machine. It's a Honda, so it's going to go on forever. You will never have any issues, and if it breaks down, you'll be able to fix it with complete ease. And I've, just take your pick, Ben. There's a 2002 Model 1, 40,000 miles in silver, lovely looking thing, 2,490 pounds. Then there's a beautiful black one. Again, these are all original condition ones. This black one, 52 horsepower, 22,000 miles, and it's 2,495 pounds. You can take your pick at once under 3,000 pounds. And the final one I'm going to do for this is something quite different, completely different. It's a 1300cc muscle bike, and you may think I'm mad, and I probably am for saying this, but you can get a Yamaha XJR1300 on Auto Trader, even without going to Facebook Marketplace, for £3,500. In fact, it's a 1250cc bike, but that's a huge amount of bike for the money. If you can just squeeze them down £500, you can go to a dealership. Pick up a 2005 model Yamaha XJR 1300. They've got classic lines, naked muscle bike, chrome circular front headlamp, wire wheels, 37,000 miles. Again, big, fairly unstressed engine with, with such a, a huge capacity like that. And again, that will be a bike that will never drop in value. The great thing about the 3,000 pound mark that you've got then it's enough to get an absolute guaranteed modern classic like i think all of these are with possibly the exception of possibly the exception of the triumph tiger but the rest of them i'm sure they're all bang on future classics because all three of the others apart from the tiger they're the only model they made. They didn't make numerous different engine sizes. That's why I said about the Tiger. Often the biggest engine will be a potential modern classic. So the Triumph Tiger is the smaller engine within the range. The other three are the only ones they did like that. They're, they're either the only ones they did or they're the real deal. They're the biggest one that you can get. So all of those will keep their value very, very well. Maybe the Triumph Tiger could drop another grand or so, but all of the others, you're going to be on to keeping every penny of your money. I think all of them will be going up in value. And in two years time, every one of the ones I've mentioned will be a higher price point than they are now. Ben, let me know what you go for. I'd love to hear. I open this up to everyone. What would you recommend for Ben? £3,000 budget. He likes the, the retro styled bikes, also open to adventure bikes. And something that ideally won't cost the world to run, comfortable on motorways. Let me know.
Oh, all of the details, my contact details in the written description as well. And of course, I forgot to say everyone, please do follow on the Insta and Facebook pages too. I move on to Nadit. Freddy, I'm currently deciding between a Motoguzzi CV7, Triumph Bonneville T120, Triumph Speed Twin 1200 BMW R9T Pure, BMW R9T Urban GS, and the R9T. How do you rank these six bikes? I've ridden a few of the ones I mentioned and like the handling of the Speed Twin quite a lot. I'd love to hear your opinion on this. Looking forward to your reply. Thanks, Nadit. This is a really, really good question. So you've got, you've got a, a good healthy budget here, Nadit, and you've got a very, very strong, oh, it's a strong shortlist you've got. You've got a very good selection in bikes here and a healthy budget to match. I'm going to tell you a, a, f a few insights from my experiences here. I've only ever ridden the Triumph Speed Twin for, for two minutes. It's a lovely bike. It, for me, is is in between a super naked and a modern classic with regards to comfort. I did find it slightly compromised on comfort. And interestingly, I've had two friends of mine who, one of them has sold his Triumph Speed Twin 1200 because funnily enough, he actually preferred his old Triumph Street Triple over it. And another one is potentially considering selling it. And I have heard from someone else who I've read out on the podcast that he couldn't quite get along with the Speed Twin 1200. So it's probably a little bit too uncomfortable for me personally to consider buying. So I may actually, if it were me from what I need in a bike, I may actually drop that from the list. Let's get on to the Motoguzzi V7. It's a lovely bike. It's comfortable. It's characterful. It's a looker. It is by quite a big distance, the least powerful of the lot. If you're the kind of biker, Nadit, who, who likes that feeling of effortless power, you will want to drop the Motoguzzi V7 from this list because these other bikes will, will kill it performance-wise. However, if you're more like me and you like the more relaxed, sedate kind of riding, then definitely keep that in the list. Otherwise, remove it because these other bikes are beasts compared to that. Bonneville T120, the definition of class, effortless power, it can keep up with anything and probably beat most things on the road, but you never feel like you need to. It is an all day long cruiser. It's a continent crusher. It looks as good as anything else on the road. The build quality is sublime. It's genuinely comfy. You can put panniers on it with ease. You can put a backrest on it for your pillion. It will do everything. It's, it would be, a bike that I would very seriously consider for myself because it's like my bike, but better in every way and beefier and quicker. It just every way it's better than mine. Sub supreme bike. The BMW R9T Pure. Yes, that's the base model for anyone who doesn't know. That's the base model of the BMW R9T. I don't even think it's got wire wheels. Funnily enough, I really like this because I like stripped back bikes. If you're looking at the three R90s, the Urban GS, which 
which does look good. The only reason I wouldn't go for the Urban GS is because that's a, it's a pretty big brute of a bike with a lot of horsepower. And I prefer, I actually prefer my off-roading bikes, especially if it's a scrambler-style bike, to, to be lighter and cheaper because I, I feel like I can drop them and chuck them around the place. I just don't feel like the BMW R9T lends itself that well to that style of scrambler bike. I think it's too overpowered. I think it's just probably too nice a bike to really use off-road, and I don't think anyone actually would. Although I do see the appeal, I can't lie, it's a cool bike, but I would probably drop the Urban GS just from the kind of rider I am. So, I would say you're left with the Moto Guzzi V7 if you're happy with the drop in power, but because all of the other bikes you've put here, Nadit, are big beasts, I'm going to drop the Moto Guzzi for you because I think you like the higher powered bikes. So I think you're left with the Triumph Bonneville T120 and the BMW R9T, and that is a straight shootout. Here's what I think. This is what you need to decide between the two. The Triumph Bonneville T120 can do everything. It can tour in incredible comfort, carry two people, carry panniers with ease, and importantly, it looks good with panniers. The BMW R9T, it is an even more sublime handler. It's quicker. It will beat the T120 when you get some real twists, let's say if you get to Italy or something, because it's a sublime handling machine and it's it's powerful and it is, it's like BMW cars. It's, it's a rider's bike. That is a seriously impressive machine and it holds its value very well and it's a bang on future classic. That is a, a seriously top end bike, but the BMW R9T is not anywhere near as good a touring bike as the T120. It won't be as comfortable on long distances, it doesn't look as good with panniers, and it is atrocious compared to the T120 for taking a pillion. So you need to decide, do you want the, perfor the performance and the sublime handling of the BMW R9T, or do you want the class and the durability and the all-roundness, I should say, more than durability, the class and the all-roundness that the T120 offers. And that's where the straight shootout will come. Nadit, let me know what you go for. I move on. Freddy, I'm looking to purchase a bike for a city commute, weekend touring, and some light off-roading. I think a road-orientated adventure bike would be a good fit. I really like the Royal Enfield Himalayan, but it's underpowered for long touring on the highways. A logical choice might be a CB500X versus or V-Strom. But I dislike how these bikes, especially, uh, I dislike how these bikes look, especially with the front beak. Aside from the Himalayan, are there any other choices for a classic adventure bike? Or maybe I can set up a modern classic bike as an off roader slash tourer. If only Royal Enfield made the Himalayan with a 650cc engine. Thank you, David. David, I've got a list here of three bikes, but I've just seen you've written on the highways, and that means you're American. And the first bike I've listed is the Moto Guzzi V85. 
And I wanted to get really enthusiastic and say, you must buy a Motogood CV85. This ticks all of your boxes. It looks brilliant. It can handle light off-roading without any issue at all. It will be, well, it is, I've tried it. It's stunning on the road. It's a glorious looking bike. But I know that Motogutsis have an awful reputation in the US and the dealer network is, as I've heard, atrocious. I would still recommend it, but being American, I would understand if you stay away from that. Next up, I, let me just shut back in there, David. An old BMW GS, just like the one I've, I've recommended uh, to, to Ben, because these old ones, have a look from the original, long way, what was the original one? The long way round or the long way up, Ewan McGregor, uh, Ewan McGregor and uh, Charlie Borman, because these are modern classics and they look brilliant and they'll do absolutely everything. But I want to chuck one more thing in there because you touched on it and that is a very good point. Modern classic retro bikes, they can all be set up as really excellent touring and off-roading bikes, whether it's a, a Bonneville T100, uh, a T120. You can also look at the, uh, the Kawasaki W800s. A lot of these bikes, even the, the Ducati Scramblers, these bikes can all do uh, a big range of things. So you can look at all of these bikes. But if I just talk from my point of view about the Bonneville, I have, especially in uh, maybe two years ago, I went to the Tabernas Desert. I've done a lot of off-roading on my Bonneville. I, I put a skid plate underneath it so it can, it can get scratch, scratched and bashed up and it protects all of the underside. I put big, hard, hard leather panniers on that are lockable so it can go touring. And I have abused that bike off-road and it has never, ever let me down. It has been seriously good. I mean, I've taken it on some semi-decent off-roading areas, really I have, and it has never put a foot wrong and it's got up everything, even with road tires for these. So I would say if you can't find something that you quite like the look of from a, uh, an adventure bike, a mini adventure bike point of view, have a look at a Bonneville because you put a skid plate on one of those and the Bonnevilles often don't get the reputation that they deserve for durability and toughness. They are seriously toughly built bikes. My, my bike has not been well looked after. I take it everywhere and it's never put a foot wrong, ever. It's never missed a beat apart from the battery issues, but all that required was a new one. David, let me know what you go for. The best of luck. I move on, Freddie. I recently heard an older podcast uh, you made where you mentioned Monica and an old relationship she had. In that episode, you talked about how she wouldn't allow her, or how Monica wouldn't allow her old boyfriend to ride a motorcycle. And I think I can hear Monica in the background laughing here. But now, but now she finds herself zipping around in random locations around the world, which I'm sure is something she couldn't have imagined doing a few years ago. That being said, I recently read a book called The Unplugged Alpha. And apologies if you hear something in the background, that's Monica probably telling me to shut up. So have a listen to my advice, take it with a pinch of salt, and apologies if there's swearing in the background. So I continue. 
I recently read a book called The Unplugged Alpha, which had some amazing insights and also a chapter on why every man at some point in their life should own a motorcycle, almost as a rite of passage. And it honestly makes one of the most compelling arguments for riding I've ever heard. But I think a quote that he made in the book sums up things and the seeming, seemingly double standardness perfectly. Here we go. Women will make rules for beta males and break the rules for alpha males. And I think there's a natural attraction on the part of women to a man willing to do dangerous things confidently. Okay, I'm guessing Monica's disappeared somewhere. Good, I haven't, oh no, she's there, she's there. I'm just waiting for a reaction. Anyway, just thought it was an interesting read and I'd be curious to hear what Monica thinks. Well, you know, Monica's heard enough, I, but I actually don't think we'd get the truth out of Monica. So I will answer on Monica's behalf at the end of this. I continue. Also, I'm looking at a Royal Enfield 350 Classic in Helsing Glay, Halcyon Grey. For some reason, this colour scheme, while unconventional, really makes me think of the 50s biker scene that I love. A slicked back greaser in a white t-shirt with lucky strikes rolled up uh, the sleeve comes to mind. But as silly as it seems, I feel that if I choose this bike, I'll never want to wear any of my safety gears. It doesn't fit with the look that I want to go for. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts. And if any of this plays into your buying decisions, happy riding. I love this. You know, I'd never come across this book. This is completely fascinating. And I could ask Monica, and I could probably ask any woman, but I honestly don't think they would ever tell the truth slash admit to any of it. But I, I agree with you. I agree with you 100%. I think that book is probably completely spot on. And I would say that that, although Monica would not want to admit it, that would fairly closely describe Monica as well. I want to read this book. I'm going to find this book. I'm not a huge reader of books, but I'm going to go onto Amazon. Monica's saying you've never read a book in your life. Well, I'm going to go onto Amazon after this and have a look for this book. It sounds absolutely brilliant. And I love the fact about this because I was reading this after you sent this email. So about three days ago, I was I was just reading a few excerpts from this book. It's, it's quite interesting, actually. It did, it did pique my interest enough to really consider buying it. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, with regards to the Royal Enfield Classic 350, that's a great color scheme. You know, I was in Barcelona and I was talking to the guy at Royal Enfield and they had the Halcyon, what do they call it? Halcyon Grey Royal Enfield Classic 350. And it's the first one I ever saw and I almost collapsed because it looked so incredible. I've never seen a bike looking so good. It was unbelievable. So I said to him, my God, that's a work of art. And he said that you will never see these in showrooms because most dealers, Royal Enfields, they, they don't think they could shift them. But he said that we decided to get one in just for the hell of it. So we ordered one in and the response has been completely unbelievable. It's one of these bikes that you really have to see in the flesh to appreciate. It would absolutely be my pick if I were to buy a classic 350. It's unbelievably rare. I'm not sure I've ever seen one on the road in Halcyon Grey, but my Lord, it's a stunner. It is definitely my pick. So good choice with that. Uh, with regards to the gear, 
this is a, a really, really interesting point, at least from my point of view, because I remember when I had my Triumph Speed Triple, and it's the kind of bike, it's a super naked. It always steered me towards wearing leather trousers and, and touring boots and things like that, you know, full gear. And, and that was all great. But by the end, the last year of owning that bike, I really, I really started desperately wanting a bike that lent itself more to the biker lifestyle that, that I felt fit my desires. And that's why I love the modern classics, the Royal Enfields, the Triumphs, the Harley Davidsons. I mean, the Triumphs, the retro Triumphs and the Harley Davidsons, all of these modern classics, the cruisers, because the, the biking clothing that are associated with these modern classics and cruisers is gear that looks great on and off the bike. It's lifestyle stuff and also pushing it a bit further. I also feel that it lends itself more, at least riding around town, to just wearing normal gear, chucking on a helmet and just wearing normal gear. It, for some reason, and I know I often get in trouble for this, but for some reason it just feels like it's safe enough to ride around town in just normal gear with a helmet when you're on one of these just laid back motorbikes, such as the Harleys and Triumphs. So yes, absolutely, I that was a, a decently significant in my buying decision for the Triumph Bonneville for that combination and fusion of the the brilliantly cool lifestyle and an everyday life coming together. The fact you can jump on, jump off the bike seamlessly, jump on the bike, ride to a coffee shop, enjoy yourself at a coffee shop. Whereas on my speed triple, I'd always be going around like a Power Ranger. So if it was the summer, 30 degrees, I'd ride somewhere, get to the place, and I would be desperate to get back on the bike because I'd be so, so unpleasant walking around. It was agony sometimes. God, that's... I really enjoyed reading that. So thank you so much for sharing. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I move on. Freddie, Harry here from Portland, Oregon in the USA. Love the podcast and the YouTube. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts between two bikes. It's actually pretty similar to a video you did on YouTube, but still I wanted to add a bit of context from my perspective. Getting my first bike... I'm trying to decide between a Royal Enfield Interceptor or a used anywhere from 2015 to 2019 are available in my area in abundance. I'm really looking at Bonnie's in the same price range that I could get the Interceptor. Since it'll be my first bike and I really love them both on appearance, I was wondering if there's any additional thoughts that you've got in the comparison. Cheers. I'm I'm so sorry. I've completely forgotten to save your name. I'm still doing it. I cannot believe it. I think this may be the only one from here. So my huge apologies. In fact, I've just seen, I've read it out. It's Harry from Portland, Oregon. Harry, just ignore that last sentence. Yes, I do have an interesting insight for you. Keep listening until a couple of messages down because there's an owner of an interceptor who shared a fascinating insight into his first few months ownership experience of an Interceptor, feeding on from last week and a bit of further insight. I found this 
just as interesting as last week. So keep listening to that. That may help with your decision. My point of view, Harry, when it's my decision making with a bike, I will usually go for an older, slightly more premium bike. So I will usually trade off the, the safety of buying a brand new bike for the, the increased quality that you get with an older bike, but that's now dropped in value. So if it were me, I would go for an older Bonneville because I've tested both of them side by side. My Bonneville, which is now 13 years old, compared to what was then probably a two-year-old Interceptor. And the Bonneville, even though it's an extra, let's say, 10, 11 years older than the Interceptor I tested, it's still a better bike in every way. The build quality, the ride quality, the extra performance, they're all still there, they're all still apparent. And the Bonnevilles are such good, simple, reliable bikes. You're going to have really a lifetime of stress-free riding. On a bike that's so well built, it will last not just the engine, but the frame, the components, the fact it's not a tech fest. I would say go for the Bonneville if it were my money. Let me know what you go for, Harry. I move on. Freddie, I thought, oh, JB, I've got one for you here. It's, it's a little, it's a comeback to what JB said in last week's podcast episode. Freddie, I thought I'd respond directly to JB regarding one of his comments. It's regarding the NHS and whether we should take all precautions to help mitigate against the issues the NHS is facing. Firstly, the issue of funding. JB mentions that Americans can take risks with a clear conscience because they pay private medical insurance, while we should exercise greater care because we have free NHS paid by taxes. Where does he think the taxes come from? Has he looked at his payslips recently and has he noticed the national insurance column? We pay just like everyone else for our healthcare. As I've said before, we all have our own attitude to risk and I do not judge or make demands on anyone regarding their personal lifestyle choices, whether it be smoking, drinking, overeating, skydiving, skiing, mountain biking, parkour, or whatever. Let's not forget that the ultimate safety procedure is to not motorcycle at all. And make no mistake, there are those out there who would happily take that away from us. So we should be very grateful, uh, so we should be very, very careful, sorry, about making demands, no matter how righteous we think they are on ourselves, we are only helping those who seek to legislate against us. Stephen, Stephen, really, really good insight. Thank you, really appreciate that. I move on. Freddie, after listening to your latest podcast and the comment from Fabian on... Ah, this is... Let me just check this. Here we go. This is for you, Harry. This is for you, Harry, from Oregon. Have a listen to this. It's about the Royal Enfield Interceptor. Very interesting insight. Hi, Freddie. After listening to your latest podcast and the comment from Fabian on the servicing intervals on the Interceptor, I thought I'd give my view. I used to own a Triumph 
Street Twin, but sold it for Suzuki SV650 as my head went out against my heart. But what I should have done was just bought my dream bike of a Bonneville T100 or an older Bonneville 865. I should just say, let me interject here, because you've just described here, Paul, you've just described so similar to what I ended up doing. I sold my Triumph Speed Triple and I bought a Suzuki Bandit. I, just like you, uh, it almost sounds bad downgrading, but I, I downgraded. I, I went for a simpler bike because I let my head rule uh, over my heart. I carry on. My head was saying, look at the Interceptor because of the value for money and you get a new bike for a similar price to an older Bonneville. So I booked a test ride on an Interceptor, which I really enjoyed, and I was going to pull the trigger on a brand new Interceptor as soon as I got back to the dealership after the test ride. I started asking questions about servicing, etc., and this is what stopped me. The first service in three months or 300 miles, and that is a check, but also to have a valve clearance check. And the dealer reckoned around 340 pounds in cost after just three months. Then at 3,000 miles, there would be another smaller service at around 100 pounds. And then at 6,000 miles, another service with a valve check, which again would be around 340 pounds. Now, modern Bonnevilles are 10,000 mile service intervals and 20,000 miles for the valve check. Okay, before I carry on, I'm going to interject here because if you do 6,000 miles on an interceptor, which is absolutely plausible, you would be spending uh, 340 plus 100, that's 440 plus another 340, that is 780 pounds in the first year slash 6,000 miles of riding your Royal Enfield interceptor. 780 pounds on a six and a half grand-ish bike. That is not an insignificant amount of money. So that's a lot of money. It's quite eye-opening. I continue. I ended up, in the end, I went for an eight-year-old Bonneville as at exactly the same price as a brand new Interceptor. But when you work out the costs of ownership over the three-year warranty, for the Interceptor and to maintain, importantly to maintain the warranty, you would want to have and to get Royal Enfield to service it. And doing just 6,000 miles a year, it would cost 500 miles, 500 pounds a year servicing and two trips to the dealer per year. Whereas the Bonneville would be one trip but also is no warranty to worry about, as I can just service the Bonneville myself. Royal Enfield are really affordable, but I wonder if reliability is a concern, which is why it needs to be checked so often, or the dealers just want to make more money after the initial purchase. The Interceptor is a lovely bike at such a bargain price, but if you were to keep it longer term, you'd be better off with the initial higher price of the Bonneville, as it would likely cost less over the ownership period. Cheers, Paul.
that, that adds a completely different dynamic to, to considering a Bonneville, whether it's new or used, and the interceptor. And it's a point that I often overlook, service intervals. Triumph are extremely good with long service intervals on their bikes. 10,000 miles, that's seriously good. Whereas Royal Enfields, I think, I think the Himalayan may be the worst. The Himalayan's got some ludicrous service intervals, either one and a half thousand miles or 3,000 miles, it's tiny. The positive is you can easily work on it yourself. But again, what I sometimes fail to pick up on is that if you want to keep your warranty in check, you'll have to take it back to the dealership. So warranties can almost be a bit of a double-edged sword, especially when you're buying a budget bike. Budget, that, that does not sound right because they're superb. Especially when you're buying a cheaper bike like a Royal Enfield. It puts you in a predicament. And this could actually be not quite such a silly question as it sounds. If you buy a Royal Enfield, they are very easy to service and maintain yourself. That's the beauty of them. They're simple bikes made to be worked on yourself. Is it worth forgetting all about the warranty, almost voiding the warranty, just buying one and working on it and servicing it yourself and taking a risk that because they're such simple bikes, nothing expensive is ever going to go wrong. Just work on it yourself from day one, change your oil yourself, check the valves yourself, do it all yourself immediately because the chances of anything big going wrong are small. And if you're paying 780 pounds in the first 6,000 miles, well, what's the chance of there being an issue, a warranty related issue that would cost you 780 pounds? My guess is fairly tiny. That is really interesting and hopefully that will help Harry from Oregon give a little insight into his purchasing decision. Thank you so much for that, Paul. And congrats on the Bonneville. The next, Freddie, there are so many things in the last podcast that I have to respond to. First to JB, oh JB, you're popular in this one. First to JB, I want to tell you and everyone listening that yes, in America, we pay for our health insurance. Most people get it as benefits offered by their job. If you have a wreck and call 911, our universal emergency phone number, an ambulance is going to come and get you, no matter if you have insurance or not, uh, wearing a helmet and gear or not. In America, we don't, just, we don't just let you lie on the side of the road. Although I would like to say that electric bikes, uh, also I would like to say that electric bikes are a pipe dream. Right now, they don't have the range or enough places to charge them. And I don't know why anyone would want one when even my Harley gets 40 MPG and I can get 170 miles to a tank and fill up everywhere. Okay, let me jump in on this point here. I was watching a YouTube video. It's one of my favorite channels. It's called Harry's Garage. And he was talking about the, the future of electric and how the UK government are not giving hydrogen vehicles enough of an opportunity. They've decided, yep, yeah, okay, electric's the future, and they're not willing to be open-minded to any other kind of fuels such as hydrogen. They've just got the blinkers on. 
just got the blinkers on to electric and I really am starting to feel like electric may just be a transitional phase into the ultimate end goal, whatever that may be, whether it's hydrogen, whether it's something else, I don't know, but there are so many compromises with electric and I don't know if it's pushing on fast enough anymore. Certainly with motorbikes, I don't know if it's pushing on at all. So I, I, I kind of share your thoughts with that. I continue. Also, Freddie, don't get a chopper. You're not mechanically inclined to own one. You'll be miserable and broke. And lastly, your last two podcasts talked about Harleys. And I'm starting to think you might be drifting over to the dark side. As a lifelong Harley man, let me give you some advice. Find a 20 plus year old Harley Davidson Softail Evo. Okay, I'm reading this with interest. Find a 20 plus year old Harley Davidson Softail Evo with the lowest miles that you can. Try to find one as stock as you can. Get a factory model specific shop manual. Network yourself with people that ride the same kind of bike. <laughs> buy a Harley T, uh, buy a Harley T-shirt, strap your gear on the back and go off on a long adventure. Learn the feel of the bike. Get to know each other. Then after, uh, then after that, before you know it, you will have 50,000 miles under your belt and you'll be able to fix and know every nut and bolt on that bike. And you will never want another. Oh yeah, Freddie. The only options you need on a bike are disc brakes, electric start, and electronic ignition. Cup holders, stereo, big LCD screens shouldn't be on bikes. You ride a bike to get away from technology. I hope one day you come to America and see how we do it. Oh, I'm desperate to. I cannot wait to get out to the US and, and see what the biking culture is like because no one does it. No one does it like the US. Thank you so much for that. And Harley's coming over to the dark side. Oh, I, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I really like them. I do. Thank you. I'm continuing the US here. This is from Colin in Arizona. Freddie, I'm writing because I've recently entertained the thought of trading my Royal Enfield Continental GT650 in for the Chrome and Bronze Royal Enfield Classic 350. I've absolutely fallen in love with the chrome, bronze and gold accents on the 350. Being that you've ridden both the 650 GT and the classic 350, do you think I'd be losing out on anything? I.e. short tours with a pillion, highway spurts, city riding, etc. I'm aware of the obvious hit in performance, but don't think I'd be losing out much making the switch. Your thoughts, Colin, Arizona. Colin, I, I rode the, the classic 350 a lot. I'm, I'm sure you saw the video on YouTube, but I rode that a lot with Monica. Two up, and it will happily do. Just racking my, my mind back. I'm sure it did 70 miles an hour with no issue, two people on the back. I found that, I couldn't believe how competent that engine was. It's a lovely engine, really lovely. If I were to pick between the two, my pick would be the Classic 350 for the kind of rider I am. The Classic 350 is much, much more comfortable. It is, 
it's, it just feels so easy to jump on. And of course, the Continental GT650 is easy to jump on and easy to ride. And it's, it, it's a seriously special bike. I'll never forget my day riding that bike in Tenerife. It's magical, really magical. I cannot say how much I love that bike. But the Classic 350 is probably the most special bike I've ever ridden. If anyone says what's the most feel-good bike I've ever ridden, it's the Classic 350. It's jump on, jump off with ease. It is, for me, everything a bike should be. It's a bike that I would, I would tour Europe on, I would strap the panniers to, I could sit all day in comfort on the Classic 350. And I would look back at that bike in Lithuania and I've never got off a bike and just stopped and looked at a bike so many times, all the way up until the day I gave it back, as I have on that Classic 350. That is a, just magic on two wheels, the Classic 350. That is the most special bike I, I think I've ever ridden. It's glorious. Yeah, I don't think you'll be missing out, Colin. I don't. I think the benefits that you get from the Classic 350, of course, every ride is different in what they want, but I can tell from what you're saying, you, you don't need that extra aggression, the extra power. You will not regret it. That's a glorious bike. And that color scheme, beautiful. Final one of the day from Jack. Freddie, I'm turning 24 this week and I've booked my direct access for my A license. So for anyone that doesn't know, direct access course, it's in essence one week where you can go from never having ridden a bike before to passing your your two tests so you've passed the whole thing and then at the end of it you can ride any bike you want without any kind of restrictions i continue i've booked my direct access and i've been riding for about a year and a half on a 125cc scrambler i was wondering if you've got any tips for me for my mod one and my mod two that would help a lot jack Yes, Jack, I feel like I'm in a really, really good position to help you with this because I freak out very badly under pressure. I, I cope just awfully under pressure, really. I, I don't think I know anyone else who, who buckles under pressure as badly as I do. I was doing my Mod 1, and the Mod 1 is, in essence, where just picture... Two to three tennis courts lined up next to each other. It's it's in essence about that size, all concreted over, and you've got a series of different cones. And there'll be an instructor who's standing there, not on a bike, but standing there, who'll have his clipboard there. There'll be a mixture of things to do. You have to do a figure of eight without putting your feet down. You have to do a turn in the road, which is a road made up of cones on either side. You have to do a turn in the road without putting your foot down. You have to do an emergency stop. You have to do a, a quick swerve in the road at speed. And you will have to, I think, do slow speed riding. Um, and I remember I was sitting in this. I'll, I'll try and walk you through it, Jack. Mod one where you're doing what I've just described. You sit in your examination room and you will wait for the instructor to call you in. Your instructor's going to come in. He'll have his clipboard and he'll say, Jack XXX, sorry, I don't know your surname. He'll say, Jack, 
please follow me. You will then very nervously follow him. You have your helmet in your hand. You will then walk with him to the entrance of this tennis court shaped test centre. He'll then explain to you what you're going to do. Now, once I put my helmet on, I began hyperventilating badly where the inside of my helmet steamed up so badly I couldn't see anything. So I had to open up my visor, but I was visibly panting and he told me to head off. So I headed off and I began and I saw a sea of cones in front of me. And I got to about the third maneuver, which was the figure of eight. And the panic was intense because you're there doing your maneuvers and there's a man watching you with a clipboard, looking at what you're doing and judging you. And uh, I just freaked out. I could tell he was there watching me. I could see the cones doing the figure of eight and I freaked out. And halfway through the figure of eight, I completely forgot where I was. I didn't know where I was in the figure of eight. I, I saw cones everywhere and I thought, I don't know where I am. And I had to put my foot down and say, I'm sorry, I've lost track of where I am. And he was like, oh, that's okay, just carry on. And I said, well, I've, have I failed? And he's like, just carry on. So I, I carried on, but I knew I'd failed. And the funny thing about that is, once I knew deep down I'd failed, I was, I was carrying on knowing that I'd failed. It was so, so easy. Once I had freed myself from the burden of whether I would pass or not because I knew I'd failed, I'd bottled it. I was free to actually just ride and it was so easy. All of the things uh, are very, very simple. There's nothing there that's difficult at all. There's nothing there that you won't have done probably 30 times. So my tip is know that you probably may start freaking out if you handle pressure badly like I do, but try and Try and see the end outcome that whatever happens, whether you pass or fail, you will laugh about it and you will look back at it and think, God, that's actually really easy. The second time I passed with ease because it's so easy. So try and go in there and not overbuild it in your head because I promise you it's, it's not as difficult as you think. And try and make it seem as lighthearted and joke-like as possible because... If you go in there feeling like it's the be-all and end-all, you will cripple yourself with fear. It's, it's not that difficult, I promise you. Nothing there is difficult. Just remember where you are all the time. Focus, unlike I did with the figure of eight. Just always plan where you're going to be. Always look at where you want to go. Just simple things like that. Look at where you want to go. Remember, use the back brake. You know all of that for the slow manoeuvring. And then mod two, which is where you're on the road. I passed this first time and I found this extremely easy because mod two is much easier than a car test because you don't have someone sitting next to you in the car watching every bit of clutch control, watching how you're braking, how you're looking, how you're indicating. All you need to do, Jack, for mod two is not not crash because you just need to ride normally look to your right when you get to roundabouts make sure that no one is going to have to crash into you or stop or swerve out of their way so they don't crash into you just make sure you look make sure you're looking all around you all the time so if in doubt just left right over your shoulder just look around all the time so they can't give you any minors for a lack of visibility 
and you'll be absolutely fine. The mod two for me is infinitely easier than mod one because you don't have those close quarters with the instructor. Just make sure you're maintaining speed at a, a decent pace and just, if in doubt, be slightly on the side of overcautious, if in doubt, but not too ridiculously so. And I promise you, Jack, you'll be absolutely fine. And what I can say, at the end of mod two, if you pass it, the feeling is even more incredible than what you think it will be. I remember I passed mine South London on a Friday night and I, I cannot explain how excited I was. Just the thought that I could now go out and buy any motorbike I wanted. Yeah, it's just indescribable pleasure. I still remember that feeling so well. It's one of the most incredible feelings. I'll wrap it up there. Thank you, Jack. Thank you so much, everyone, for messaging in. Again, if you've got any thoughts on what have been discussed, all of the comments welcome. Get as many comments in as you can and any pictures that you've got to share, please do send them over via Instagram or email and I'll, I'll make sure to share as many of those as I can on the socials. Thank you all. Have a brilliant week. And I'll speak to you all next week.